This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio, though, I have uh, Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you doing? Science is everywhere. <laughs> it's I, right I've, here. I've heard that before somewhere. Yeah, we do say that a lot. Yeah, we do. But it is. Because it is. Yep. Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am. And uh, getting excited. I am, in fact, for preparation because my son is is only six and a half. We've had to we're in the process of pre watching all the movies for the Star Wars yep. release. We saw Empire last night. Oh, very nice, very good. He 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 did not know the spoiler in it. <sighs> Extreme shock and surprise. It was oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, we won't tell anyone just yeah. in case there are three people out there in the universe who haven't <laughs> not aware of I, that. I can't imagine watching another human ex- experience that that for the first time for the first time. Yeah. That, that's a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. It really was. That's cool. That's cool. I wasn't even looking at the movie at that point. I was just. Yeah. Looking at his face. Yeah, sorry, listeners. We uh, that sounds like a video installation art project. I, I think you should get six-year-olds or yeah, seven-year-olds around the world who haven't seen it to watch that scene in a room and then video them and then video them. Yeah, and then, all right, there you go. Yeah, do it, folks. I'll give that to to the world. Yeah, so can that's come a freebie from Doctor Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, which is probably just my dad, um, we uh, we're only a couple of weeks away from the launch of the new Star Wars film, or as I say, the fourth movie. The fourth movie. Yeah. Let's just ignore the other three that we made. Um, so, you know, the, the geek fest in this room is getting pretty excited about it. But uh, look, we do have an hour of science. I should say, though, I had a great weekend last weekend meeting uh, some of our fabulous subscribers and listeners at the Buzz Aldrin event at the Melbourne Town Hall, which was just awesome. And I, you know, I'm still drooling a little bit, having... Um, seen him so close up um but it was great to speak to a couple of the people who won the tickets on the show in the previous weeks and they and they waved to me some of them said hello um which was cool um so it was really nice to meet them and there's at least i can guarantee there's at least two people listening to the program so that's cool interesting question about that because i saw some of the pictures posted from that did you dress up your son in the NASA outfit on purpose in the hopes that he would get called up to the stage? Damn straight I did. <laughs> okay. And I will, I, will use my cho- I will use my children in any way I can to get next to celebrities and people like that walked on the moon and stuff. Is there something wrong with that, no, Dr. No, Ray? not at all. Not at all. <laughs> anyway, let's get into some science. Dr. Crystal, what do you got for us? Oh, it's been a big week. It's been Innovation Week. Oh, yeah. The Australia's first Innovation Week for um, 2015. Um, did anything happen that was innovative? Oh, there was lots of fantastic uh, talks and um, there was the awarding of the um, the inaugural in- Innovators of Influence uh, to, to celebrate the fact that Australia does do innovation really, really well. It's just we don't do enough of it. Yeah. So there's been some great success stories through some of our technology companies um, bringing new drugs and new devices to, uh, to market that are just sensational. So mm. it was a great week to celebrate Good. innovation in Australia. And it's also a big week globally for science discussion and decision-making. Because we've seen the uh, UN conference on climate change, mm. uh, all those uh, talks are happening in Paris right now, which are ongoing, I believe. They're, yep. they're are, are still in process, talking about how we as a planet can come together to solve some of the biggest challenges of our future around climate. Mm. Um, but also, there was an international summit on gene editing that was held in Washington DC last week, which was talking about the power and potential of uh, being able to edit the genomes of, um, of, of of plants, of animals, and of people. And so it was it was um, it was brought together because there's been some really amazing advances in gene editing technology just in the past couple of years, um, which uh, new techniques and new technologies which are enabling um, cheaper, faster, more versatile, and more precise ability to edit 
genomes. Um, and, and so because of this, it's a, a, the new technology is called uh, CRISPR. Mm, and um, yep. and CRISPR technology is quite controversial because it is so easy and so um, amazing uh, to be able to edit uh, genomes and to, to cut genes out of um, of um, of genomes and and, the, and it works across bacteria, plants, animals, and now also in humans. Um, there was there was a decision uh, taken by the U.S. Academy of Sciences involving the U.K. Royal Society and the Chinese Academy of Sciences to get all the experts together and say, well, we can do this. Should we? Should we? Yeah. Yeah, and um, and so you know, um, they, they they had a big congress, and they they basically came out with four recommendations, and and um, basically saying that that firstly, there's strong support for basic research. We need to understand how this technology works, how it doesn't work, what some of the challenges are. So really intense research is needed. They also decided that when it came to clinical use, um, this is, you know, in, in, in humans, they decided that, that this technique could continue to be used on adult cells to be able to, you know, be able to, um, for example, take cells in your immune system, alter them to fight cancer and put them back into you sort of thing. Um, and, and that this kind of um, clinical use should proceed subject to existing regulations. So, you yeah. know, there's already good regulations in place for that. But they came out and they said for clinical use for germline cells, and these are the cells, the sperm and the eggs and the embryos, Embryos, which are being used um, to create people, they said that you know um, it would be irresponsible to progress this technology to a pregnancy. So they basically said. So this is, this is because they're worried that it'll be passed on through the species continually, and it becomes part of who we are. Absolutely, yeah. because you're talking about. Um, heritable genetic yeah. changes. So yeah. you're talking about making a person um, with, with their genome that's been edited and then they will be able to pass that on. Mm. And so that, that, that's a big, mm. a big decision to make as a species as to whether or not we want to have that power. Yeah. And you and I were just talking earlier about how it almost echoes those discussions back in the 1950s around the use of nuclear technology. You know, we have a technology that can alter us as a species. What are we going to do about it? And so the fourth point they came back with was that there needs to be ongoing discussion. There needs to be a forum that, you know, meets consults and and talks broadly to society around you know well what's the consensus on the proposed applications for this amazing new dean technology um and i think you do have to think about both sides i mean there were some incredibly passionate um patient advocates who spoke at this conference you know a mother who got up and talked about her six-day-old child who died of a genetic disorder you know saying please just do this get on Mm. with it Mm. you know families with huntington's disease who know that 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 you know they're, they're genetically predisposed to this terrible degenerative condition saying well can't can't we use this to alter our our um yeah, our, our genes fix to fix yeah. it if, if we've got yep. the technology to fix it why aren't you doing it so mm. so it's a really um there are great arguments why you would do this and there are great <clears throat> arguments why you would not do this and i think it's fantastic that this discussion is being had yeah absolutely because one of the interesting things here is that we have had plenty of time decades to ethically get on top of this and we haven't. And the technology now, as you say, is really starting to accelerate. And it's, it's been on the go for a while in in more difficult way, but it's been on the go for a it's while. It's been on the go since the 1970s. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, we just haven't caught up with what's right or wrong. But if, as you say, if you're a parent and your child or even yourself um, or a friend or, or loved one is suffering from what could be in 20 years' time or 10 years' time or even less a curable disease then the ethics are pretty bloody clear, I have to say. You know, it's, it's world, hard. Imagine it's a hard. world without cystic fibrosis yeah. or a world without, you know, all, all these things that we could fix. Yeah, and it, and it all comes back to, you know, are all the people doing this ethical? And the answer to that is a simple no, 
Uh, no, absolutely no doubt. A lot of them are. The majority are. But we put these things in place for the few that aren't. And that, that's always the catch, isn't it? So Absolutely. So um, I think mm. the first point that intensive research needs to continue is yeah, a good one. Absolutely. Yeah. Why, absolutely. And that, you know, we're not going to turn our backs on a technology that holds so much potential. You can't close the box once you've done it. <laughs> Dr. Ray. Dr. Shane. Something um, less serious? <laughs> I, I'd say a fair bit. Um, vegetable, oil, boil, vegetable oils improve strong superplastic fibers. Oh, cool. So um, uh, I, I love this term. Ultra-high molecular weight, ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene, U-H-M-W-P-E. It just rolls off the tongue. Mm, it does. Uh, is a fiber used in things like bulletproof clothing, armors, marine tow lines, sails, basically the all of the the ropes they use to hold in more ships, things like this. Um, commercial fibers, they're already made by a couple companies internationally, part of our everyday lives. A couple scientists went, wait, yeah, sure, we know how to make these, but we can probably make them better. And by replacing a solvent, we realized they could make them at 50% less cost or 100% stronger just by switching the solvent they make them in. Hmm. And I kind of went, this sounds interesting. Whatever do you mean? I know polyethylene is what I, my, my Ziploc plastic bag is made out of. I didn't realize they made ropes out of it. And they don't actually make it out of the same polyethylene. They make it out of one that's polymerized to be even longer. And the problem is when you make a long polymer, you have made spaghetti, and it gets tangled. Mm-hmm. To make a fiber, you have to get all the spaghetti strands going the same way. Yeah. And so this is ex- they extrude them in a process called spinning. The one they actually use is called gel spinning. And they use a, a petroleum-dissolved solvent called decalin. And they put about 10% polymer, 90% solvent in, and spin out these fibers, and then they make them into rope. As it turns out, they went, wait, it's, it's really good at dissolving it. Let's pick solvent that doesn't dissolve it so well. And they pick basically peanut oil and different fatty acids and vegetable oils. Works fantastically. They can use it at two and a half times as much polymer for the same amount of solvent. Or if they use it at the same ratio they are now, it's 100% stronger. And this is a mature field. I mean, 100% stronger. Yeah, so it, it's, it's doubled. It's double. Strength. And so you're talking about something that you were saying earlier is used in like bulletproof clothing. And, yeah, and, and it's twice as strong. Wow. Ties up big boats. Those big, big ropes. Yeah. So you can either... Half the size. Yeah, you can either make it a 50% cheaper or make it twice as strong. Yeah. Maybe you could use half as much. And, and so this is just amazing because it's an existing field. They had a, a guy from the DuPont Experimental Station who's a retired editor went, this is a mature field. Nobody's expecting process improvements out of two scientists at ETH Zurich to go, hey, wait, what if we just change this? Mm. And, uh, and because it's in my mind and because the innovation statement for Australia is coming out on Monday, I'd like to point out this is clearly about impact of research. It's innovative. It's impactful. But it was made possible because you had a lot of people doing a lot of research that didn't have an obvious impact. Mm. And what's exciting about this work is it pulls that together to go, everything we understand about what polymer science, that we read in textbooks, that we've done research on for years, we can take advantage of it in this one spot and make this happen. But without the polymer science, the years of research in the textbooks, this wouldn't happen as well. Mm. Indeed. Well, look, I... Uh I saw something that I found this really fascinating, but apparently there are a few people in the world, not many, that are born without the ability to feel pain. You've oh. probably heard this before. Yeah. So it's a very small number, and it's a very rare um, it's a very rare condition. And apparently it results from the fact uh, there's this particular genetic mutation that means that these little ion channels, that um, they move sodium across the, the sensory nerves, they, they actually don't, don't work. They don't, they don't form. And... Um, 
or you, you know these people don't have them and so the idea was a little while back they're called nav 1.7 channels and the idea was well you know maybe if you could sort of um you could block out these channels functioning in other people you could actually knock out pain and so there was a whole lot of um you know pharmaceutical companies of course got very excited about this you know oh, this would be the the new version of uh um, analgesics and so forth you, you you knock out these channels in a person for a period and they stop feeling all pain only problem was all these chemicals they produced didn't work. So there was some reduction, in, I think, in some patients, but generally speaking, they, they didn't actually um, feel pain at all. So this week in, um, in Nature Communications, um, a guy named John Wood at University College London has reported some experiments he's done on, um, on mice where he's basically he's bred these animals specifically so that this gene doesn't work, so they don't have these NAV 1.7 channels and they don't feel pain. And there's ways of determining when an animal doesn't feel pain, which I won't go into here, but they're, they're pretty restricted in the way they do it. Um, but what they found was, and of course, so that makes sense. They don't have the NAV 1.7 channels um neither do the people um the animals don't feel pain so why is it that these drugs that knock out these channels in in everyone else don't work the same way well what they found was in these mice um there is also a massive production of opioid peptides which are basically the body's natural um painkillers and so these mice even though they didn't have these pain channels, were also producing these massive amounts of natural painkillers in their bodies. So when, of course, you give the drug to someone that knocks out these, these, these channels, you're not also giving them these opioids at the same time, so hence it doesn't work. So they've kind of found out that um, you know, without this, uh, without this uh, additional factor, they can't work. And, of course, there are ways to um, um, block the opioid receptors. And there's a, there's a chemical called Nexo, Nexo, uh, so, Nelazone, I think it's pronounced, and that actually blocks these opioid receptors. And when you do that, as well as the ion channel, you get the effect that you want. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that's pretty clear is that you can turn back on to so this, this, this woman that they've been dealing with, um, in particular, who doesn't feel pain. They've managed to turn her pain receptors back on. And, so, and they gave her a small burn with a laser, and she was able to feel that. And, and the researchers were interesting. This guy, um, John Wood said she was kind of excited about the fact that she could feel this pain because she hasn't felt anything like that in her entire life. Well, it's quite dangerous not being able to feel pain. Yeah. Like, well, it's actually, like, because you, you, you end up getting gangrene and cutting yourself and not knowing. Well, well the funny thing is she, she refers specifically to the dangers in childhood because when you're a child, um, you can almost all but chew your lip off and, you know, chew your fingers off and stuff when you're, when you're, you're an infant because you don't realise that, oh, this is a bad thing to do, this is hurting me, or you put your hand in the fire and oh i shouldn't do that this is hurting me all the experiences that we learn children who have this condition this genetic anomaly don't actually learn so it's interesting that the real interest around this is on preventing other people from feeling pain but it looks like the outcome of this research will be more on helping those who don't because one of the things you don't want to be doing of course is using you know opioids um on mass as a as a technique for reducing pain because you know all these things have side effects and the more side effects uh you know you've got so, to keep clear of those dr shank uh, to be clear though this is still years away well, I mean, they've, they've actually done the experiments in people. Um, they know that they can block the NAV 1.7 channel. What they didn't know is that they also have to, you know, 
upscale the but, opioid production but, in their body. But the compelling case is not necessarily for the next Panadol. It's for people that are living under chronic pain. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 so, and, and that's the thing. With these sorts of chemicals, there is a pretty, you know, this is pretty serious stuff. So you, you don't want to be seeing the side effects of this unless you absolutely have to. So I think, but, it, but I actually found it more interesting from the point of view of the person who can't feel pain and, and children who are born with this genetic variant that says they'll never feel pain in their life, the ability to be able to essentially turn pain on is actually quite important to them. So, I would love to look mm. at the imaging of her brain. Oh, Can yeah. you imagine like the, the whole, so cool. the, the, the first time that kind of pathways and the, and yeah, the actual... what lit up. The, what lit up and the yeah. signal processing that happens in response yeah. to that. That's very cool. Incredible. Three triple R. Uh, we're a science show, and we have a live scientist. Actually, we have more than one uh, in the studio, but we have one in the studio as our guest, Dr. Tamsin Van Rienen, is an NHNMRC postdoctorate research fellow in the Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Centre at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Tamsin. Welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> now, you um, you work in a very interesting couple of areas, and I'm going to ask you mm-hmm. to define the difference between the two because I think yep. they often get mixed up. Mm-hmm. One is um, bipolar disorder and the other is schizophrenia, mm-hmm. which are distinct conditions, aren't they? Yes, they are. They so are. How, how are they different? Well, that's actually a really good question. I think a lot of people do get confused about schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. They're both severe psychiatric disorders. They mm-hmm. both affect around 1% of the population. But bipolar disorder is actually a primary mood disorder. So people okay. who have that disorder are characterised by sort of extreme fluctuations in mood between manic highs and depressive lows, whereas uh, schizophrenia is actually a primary psychotic disorder. So people who have that disorder tend to have psychotic symptoms like hallucinations, delusions. They tend to have a sort of loss of uh, loss of touch of reality, essentially. So that's sort of the main differences uh, it's mm. in the clinical symptoms, but there are also some overlaps. Okay. And actually, that's sort of where my current research is focused, looking at where those overlaps lie. Okay, so coming, coming back to mm-hmm. something most people will be aware of, the film A Beautiful Mind about mm-hmm. Um, about the mathematician Nash. So he had schizophrenia, schizophrenia. then. So yep. he had audio and visual hallucinations. Hallucinations and yeah. delusions. Yep, okay. delusions. So un- unusual beliefs about things yeah. that are not necessarily true. Yeah. Yep. Do, do we have an understanding of what's causing the hallucinations? I mean, this is quite... I mean, to me, a visual hallucination where I'm seeing the room, mm-hmm. so I'm awake, I'm not asleep, I don't have my eyes closed, but there is just an additional individual or mm-hmm. item in the room that mm-hmm. seems very specific and mm-hmm. very extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Do we understand what's causing it? Uh, not entirely, and I've got to be honest that this is not pure, really my area of research, um, but I think that there's a lot of brain mechanisms that are sort of abnormal and mm-hmm. that might be causing those problems. So actually, uh, someone that I work closely with studies uh, auditory hallucinations, right. so hearing voices, which is actually quite common in mm. schizophrenia, yeah. um, and there's actually a lot of abnormalities in the areas of the brain that process um, auditory information. Um, so yeah, that's something that might be contributing to these auditory hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, let's, let's talk about your work because you, mm-hmm. you use um, neuroscience psychological and neuroimaging techniques mm-hmm. to study the brain in these conditions. Let's start with neuropsychological. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is uh, in- interviews and, and um, discussions. I mean, how, how, does, how does this work? Yeah, how do you so, study them? So neuropsychological tests are more uh, relating to cognition. So when I say cognition, I'm talking about thinking patterns. So memory, attention, our ability to plan and problem solve, processing speed, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Yep. So we use a whole range of different techniques that tap into those kinds of uh, processes. So for example, we might use a memory task where we ask people to... Uh, uh, well, they listen to a list of words and then we ask them to recall that list and we do it a number of times to see if they can learn on each of those trials. Okay. Um, we might do things where we look at their selective attention. So there's a really well-known test called the Stroop test. I don't know if anyone here has heard of it, but uh, basically uh, 
what happens is people are presented with a list of words and the words are written in a colour that's different to what the word means. So you might get a word uh, red written in blue and we ask people to tell us what the colour is, not read the word. So it really requires uh, people to inhibit their first response, which is to read the word and really mm. focus on naming the colour, which is actually quite difficult. So these are the kinds of tests that we use to sort of tap into these cognitive processes and basically see if they're impaired or not in these groups. And, and what do you see in these groups? Because even as a, an unimpaired person, mm-hmm. although a lot of people would argue <laughs> against that, <laughs> Dr Crystal's giving me a weird look, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I've done some of those tests and mm-hmm. they are challenging. I mean, you, yep. you, your instincts do take, you know, your learned response takes over very quickly. So yep. if you have to defeat that, it's quite a bit of work. Absolutely. So what do you see? So in both of these disorders, we actually see quite significant impairments. Um, generally, the schizophrenia group is actually tends to perform quite a lot worse uh, in comparison to the bipolar group, but both of them have sort of that same pattern of impairments when you're comparing them to healthy individuals. Mm. So I think that that's actually a real problem because it can have significant implications for the way people can function in society. Absolutely. You know, yeah. holding down a job, social relationships, that kind of thing can be severely impacted if there's a cognitive impairment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of one of the interests that I've been uh, taking in sort of uh, characterising these cognitive impairments and, and going beyond that because, as you said, it's actually quite challenging just for a person who doesn't have one of these disorders mm. um, and uh, sometimes we see a lot of variability within groups. So in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, we'll see variability. So sometimes someone with one of those diagnoses will have a really impaired cognitive profile and other times uh, with the same diagnosis, they won't have any cognitive impairment at all. And mm. unfortunately, a lot of the research at this point has been just grouping all of those individuals together, which is actually a real problem. Um, and it's sort of impairing our ability to truly see what's going on in that disorder in terms of cognition. Mm. So is that something that surprised you? I guess, you know, you think, well, oh, these are people who've got mental health issues. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it might seem obvious that they would have other difficulties. Mm-hmm. I mean, what surprised you about your findings? I guess traditionally, at least with bipolar disorder, uh, the symptoms are mainly the clinical symptoms, so the mood symptoms. And people sort of assume that when people uh, when people with bipolar disorder were not in a mood episode, um, their, their cognitive symptoms sort of re- uh, resolved. But really, we actually see this ongoing impairment in their functioning. So they have difficulties in social relationships, difficulty in holding down jobs. At least some people do. Not just when they're having a clinical not episode. Not just in an episode, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with schizophrenia. So it's actually almost like a separate set of symptoms that we really need to focus on. And a lot of the treatments out there at the moment don't really target improving cognition. So, so yeah. one of the things that we see in the sort of popular media and, and, and movies and so forth mm-hmm. is that when when these people go on certain medications that are seen to help their yep. cognition appears to go down or their abilities mm-hmm. go down is is this just a, a falsehood or is is there a relationship there there look i think there's definitely a relationship between medication and cognitive outcome but it's not clear and unfortunately mm. it's really really difficult to control for these kinds of things in in the type of research we do because you can't really ask people to come in and then go off their medication yeah. so you can test them it's really unsafe for them yeah. so we do what we can and I think that there is uh, definitely uh, a, a relationship between medication. We're not sure what that is. Sometimes it can improve cognition, sometimes it doesn't. It's mm. it's not very clear at the moment. I mean, it seems to me with a lot of this stuff, you know, I've said this many times on the show, that we are just learning to crawl in terms of the way we deal with mental health mm-hmm. in our in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, in these conditions in particular, whereas as we started the interview, th- there's a lot of confusion as to the differences between mm-hmm. them, which one's which. Um, in, in the past, they have been, you know, associated with quite <laughs> disgraceful and awful rituals over history. So, there's, yeah. there's a lot of stigma associated with them. Yeah. I mean, can you help um, people in these situations overcome some of the cognitive limitations or 
Or is that just beyond what we can do? Look, that's something that we're working towards. I think if we can get a better understanding about the actual cognitive sort of um, profile of these Mm -hmm. disorders, we can start to try to develop treatments that are focused specifically on that. So there's actually a couple of different sort of um, avenues that are being followed at this point. Uh, So there's cognitive remediation, which is uh, actually retraining the brain essentially to kind Mm. of uh, do uh, better complete these processes. And then there's also some uh, pharmacological treatments that are sort of being developed to target cognition specifically, but again, we're sort of we're we're, uh, we're working with something that we don't have a complete understanding of, mm. and we need to really progress that to to be able to treat it properly. Mm. Um, given how you pointed out that mm-hmm. uh, mood swings are uh, cognition isn't affected just during mood swings, mm-hmm. then how does the neuroimaging come into play? What mm-hmm. do you learn from that that you don't learn from, say, the cognition? surveys and interviews sometimes with these cognitive tests they're not entirely sensitive to the underlying impairment and so if we can uh, sort of use neuroimaging we can sort of start to see what's actually happening in the brain when a particular cognitive process is being carried out and then we can look at how different parts of the brain communicate with each other during that process so we can sort of start to see the underlying brain mechanisms that might be at play uh, or causing these impairments Hmm. Look, it's um, absolutely fascinating work, Tams, and I think um, one of the things, you know, as I said, we really do have a limited understanding in society Mm. of what many of these mental conditions mean for people. And and to some degree, I think society's response to this has been, you know, treating the symptoms that everyone else can see rather than treating the the challenges that individuals have. And, you know, we need to right that that balance so it's in it's in the right direction Absolutely. um how the how the people just final question how do people feel when they come in i mean they you know you, you're kind of they're, they're kind of special in your environment and, mm-hmm. and perhaps for the first time in their life they're really seen as um it's a, it's probably mm-hmm. a positive experience where mm-hmm. they're coming out with not necessarily some answers but certainly the feeling that um I suppose that they're they're getting somewhere. Is mm. that is that what you see? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people who come in uh, are very excited that we're sort of focusing on these things that they mm. have identified as being a problem for them that may not be recognised in terms of the treatment that they receive. Um, so yeah, we do get a lot of positive feedback, and a lot of people sort of tell me with certain things that I've researched before that oh, you know, this is something that hasn't been focused before for me, and yet it's a real problem for me. So mm. it's it's really good to hear that actually that we're sort of on the right yeah, track. I'm sure, yeah. Tamsin. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks having me. Dr. Tamsin Van Rienen is an NHNMRC postdoctoral research fellow in the Melbourne Psych Neuropsychiatry Centre at the University of Melbourne. Three triple R. Uh, we're back. You're listening to 3RRR. We have our second guest in the studio now, Dr. Alicia Rosetto, who's from the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Alicia, welcome to the studio. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, um, you work in an area which is, I guess, perfect in a sense, given the guest that we just had on, and that is um, the, the sort of space of mental health first aid. Mm-hmm. This is a term that I think a lot of people won't have heard before. So just give us a quick rundown on what we mean by that. Absolutely. So mental health first aid is the help that's given to a person who may be experiencing a mental health problem or a mental health crisis, which is something like suicide or Mm -hmm. um, non-suicidal self-injury, things like that. or also to um, an experiencing of a worsening mental health problem. Um, So, for example, somebody may have recovered from an episode of depression, but there are symptoms that indicate that they might be sliding back into Mm -hmm. a depressive episode. So I walk around the staff room at work and I see a whole lot of posters on bullying, a whole lot of posters on first aid. I don't see anything on mental health. Health first aid. First aid. Um, I mean, what's going on? Why are we so far behind in this space? 
It's a very new concept. So um, mental health first aid is was developed in 2001 mm-hmm. uh, by a husband and wife team called Tony Jorm and Betty Kitchener. Um, so they coined it as, I guess, an analogue to physical first aid um, and they developed a course around first aid um, for mental health problems. So there are there's a course called mental health first aid that Mm -hmm. has similarities to physical first aid so there's an action plan just like cpr mental health first aid has what we call algae um and i'll explain that acronym in a little bit um there's information about common mental health problems and common mental health crises and how to deal with them Mm. um in a way that offers practical information rather than just information um and often it uh, and it's accompanied by resources as well like particular websites that you can go to particular numbers to call things like that so your research focuses very much on what the what the public actually knows about this and how they how they go about it so i mean what what sort of things do you do there i mean how do you go about determining just how bad we are at this (laughs) um we're not actually as bad as we yeah, yeah not actually as bad as it sounds um so i do a couple of different things um we use national survey data for example um there was in 2011 a national survey of mental health literacy and stigma to determine mm-hmm. what people know about common mental illnesses and um how to potentially treat them and what their opinions are of people with mental illnesses lots of different questions there Mm -hmm. um so what i did was collated that data and compared it to what we consider best practice which is the mental health first aid action plan um and in that particular piece of research we found that people are really really good at listening to the person um at offering emotional support um and also encouraging professional help but they're not so good at things like asking directly about suicide Mm-hmm. Um, which is very important because you want that question to be unambiguous and you want the person to feel like they can answer you honestly. Um, and they're also not very good at planning their approach to the person. Like you wouldn't want to be asking somebody about their mental health in the middle of a swinging Christmas party, right? Yeah. You might want right. to be asking them <laughs> that question when you're sitting down at a cafe having mm. a cup of tea or when you're going for a walk together, something like that. So it's it's a, it's a tall order though, isn't it, in a sense? Because I know with, um, mm. you know, I, I've, for some reason, a lot of people come to my door at work and, and so forth and, and will tell me things. And and I've never thought about asking a suicide question or so forth. It's very hard to determine at what point you should do that. I mean, what, what sort of advice do we need to give to people on that? It, it just... It wouldn't occur to me that when someone walks in, sometimes in tears, Mm. that I should say, you know, are you suicidal? Is that even the right question to ask? Mm. Often there are a lot of warning signs that somebody may be suicidal. They are what we call invitations, things like giving... This is over a long period of time. um, Mm -hmm. Giving away possessions, Mm -hmm. um, feeling helpless or hopeless, like there's no way out, like people are better off without them. They're very clear indicators and obviously two of the very, very clear indicators are telling somebody that they are feeling suicidal mm-hmm. and having a plan or which includes method or means um, or time frame. Okay. So in that sense, um, they can be quite clear indicators of suicide in the way that you would ask directly about suicide is something like the things that you've just told me are very concerning i'm wondering if you're thinking about suicide um very clear unambiguous terminology Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um other times it may be a little bit more difficult to 
I guess, um, determine. But in that sense, you can still ask them directly and sensitively. You know, like, I'm worried mm. that you've told me that you're feeling down all the time and I'm really concerned that you don't want to go out anymore and that you're cutting off your friends. Yep. Tell me more about that. Um, I'm wondering if you're thinking about harming yourself or about suicide it could be a range of different mm-hmm. things so, so. And we're, we're talking about first aid here so i mean one of the things that we that comes to mind when we think about physical first aid is it's kind of action stations you know mm-hmm. you've got it your job is to keep the person alive until the paramedics arrive mm-hmm. what is the the counterpoint there for for mental health i mean yep. is, is it action stations as well i mean what 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 is the the version for mental health yeah so it is about um action well action stations insofar as talking and offering support is about action stations rather than a physical Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know hands-on chest um and and breathing action so it is it is at its core about taking action but you give you offer that action until the crisis resolves for example or until appropriate professional help is received so in that sense mental health first aid is not necessarily time limited whereas you know for example with physical first aid you just have to do cpr until an ambulance arrives um with mental health first aid it might be more ongoing um so you might have to offer support for hours days Mm. months (laughs) but just i mean just to be clear you know you're having that conversation with someone Mm. and they say yes actually i am thinking of suicide yep I have to say, I'd be I'd be tempted to call an ambulance at that point. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, that's I haven't had someone say that to me, so I'm not sure how I'd react. What thankfully, but um, <laughs> but what I mean, what is the course of action at that point? If somebody tells you that they're feeling suicidal, generally the best thing to do is to ask them directly whether they've got a time frame, mm, a means, okay. a plan, um, because those things will determine the urgency and immediacy of the situation. If somebody doesn't have a plan, if it's um, if they don't have a time frame, then comparatively they're in a little bit less danger than someone that says, yes, I have the means and I'm going to do it tomorrow. <laughs> is, is your level of action or inaction at that point potentially you know, potentially precipitates the event itself too? I mean, I would have thought you have to be very careful in these situations. If you don't do anything, hmm. it adds to them feeling well, you know, people just don't care about me. I'm, I'm not worth it. I mean, this yeah. seems a very complicated situation. It seems very complicated. Absolutely. It is the kind of, um, I guess, what we're dealing with is not straightforward. We're mm. dealing with interpersonal interactions. Yep. There's, there's a lot of moving parts to interpersonal interactions. Um, generally, if you... Sorry, just collecting my thoughts. Mm. Um, generally, if somebody tells you that they have a means and a method act on it straight away but one of the things that people forget is that it's important to reassure the person with the problem with who is feeling suicidal or who is feeling depressed that they've got a measure of control over Mm -hmm. the situation when we say jump to action stations it's not necessarily to tell them what to do it's to ask them what they feel most comfortable doing at the time okay um the only caveat to that that we would say is don't ever agree to keep it a secret okay um, yep. yeah right fair enough yeah you know it they may not want you to tell somebody but if there's an imminence to the situation you know it's important that you act on it mm. um whether that be to call triple zero whether that be to 
um, ask them to consider making an emergency appointment with a doctor, mm. whether that be driving them to hospital. Yeah, I don't think oh, I'd leave them alone. Or those kind of resources like Lifeline or Absolutely. Blue. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think that if anyone at home listening now, you know, is there are, is there are a lot of places that you can go to these days. Actually, this kind of gets at my question. My scenario was wondering more about someone, maybe not necessarily suicidal, but clearly has a mental health issue and mm-hmm. that where you, you mentioned first aid goes on for longer. It was I'm, does your the approach for mental health first aid have approaches to help someone rash, to help uh, to get over the challenge of what if that person doesn't want to get help mm-hmm. professional help how to bring them towards that it may not have the urgency of say someone on, on a suicidal step yeah. but approaches to do that are always a, a little challenging if the person is telling you but then it's cl- they're resistant to want to get help where you've yeah. offered to why don't we help you make that appointment and counseling mm-hmm. or something Absolutely, that can be really difficult. Um, the, if you go to www.mhfa.com.au, you'll find a list of resources called Medolla First Aid Guidelines, um, and they will help you with a range of different um, conditions, anxiety, depression, mm. psychosis, eating disorders. There's very clear instructions there about what to do. There's also sections about what to do if the person doesn't want the Assistance. help. Yeah. 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 Um, generally, what we would say is... That's their decision, um, and that's fine. But don't take it as a be-all and end-all. They may say they don't want help at the time, um, but stay. The, you know, yeah, keep stay, involved. Yeah, stay yeah. involved. Um, keep having that conversation with them. You may change mm. their mind, or they may change their mind themselves. One of the things that our research has found is that people with a mental health issue often cite encouragement from family and friends as being key motivators for eventually seeking professional help and that's really important because the treatment gap which is the time of first onset of mental health symptoms the time when people actually go and seek help can be years Mm, yeah i can imagine that's true yeah Mm. Um, that's a long time to be feeling mm. sad or feeling yeah, absolutely. scared. It wears you down. Uh, Alicia, thanks so much for coming in today. It's a, it's a very important issue and one that, as I've said you know, just moments ago in the program, we, we're a long way behind, I think, overall in, in how we deal with mental health. And um, yeah. the more work in this area, the better. Thank so you thank so you. much. Dr. Alicia Rosetto is from the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Free Triple R. We have Dr. Ailey Gallant in the studio. She's from the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. Ailey, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you in. Um, with all the stuff going on in Paris, I think there's a lot of climate stuff on people's minds. Um, you work in particular on understanding how sort of droughts work and, and the interaction between the atmosphere, the oceans and the land. I mean, is that not a bit much for one person, the, yeah, whole, the whole lot? it's a lot and it's a really complicated issue. I have to say most climate scientists... Um, in my field often tend to stick to temperature because it's yeah. easier to work with yeah, right. and kind of it does, you know, what you think it'll do. Rainfall, on the other hand, is a, a really complicated beast, particularly when it comes to drought. So, mm. yeah, it's a challenge, but I'm up for a challenge. Cool. So let's talk a bit about something like um, El Nino and so forth because, you know, we've got the climate change stuff happening in the background here always, but everyone always associates El Nino in Australia with major droughts. Yeah. Now, is, it, is this correct? Is this what, what we're seeing? Is this what happens all the time? Yeah, look, on the whole, when you think about it in terms of kind of um, probability, yeah, you're right. About I think it's about 30 40% of, mm-hmm. of El Ninos usually result in a drought for at least parts of Australia, not all of Australia, mm-hmm. usually eastern uh, parts yep. of Australia, but not always. For example, we had the... Um, 
Well, this year we've got a huge El Nino yeah. currently happening right at biggest the moment. Biggest one ever, apparently. Yeah, well, close to. Uh, yep. We won't quite know till kind of the end of February whether it was the biggest on record. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, 1997 was the biggest one yep. uh, before this one. Um, but actually, rainfall in 1997 was about average. In fact, it was above average in some parts of the country. Whereas 82, uh, which was the big one before that, was one of the worst droughts. You know, we had Ash Wednesday bushfires, big dust storms in southeastern Australia, and it was terrible. So, yeah, really understanding the difference between those kind of, you know, two big El Ninos, two very different responses Mm. is is a really interesting part of the research that we're doing at the moment. And how do you go about that? I mean, how do you determine or make, make the links? Because one of the things I find a lot when I read about weather is there seems to be a big challenge in finding causal links as opposed to just associated patterns. Absolutely. So how do you do that? Yeah, absolutely right. So, in fact, a paper that we just had published oh, probably about two weeks ago looks at this exact problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like in terms of the El Nino, you know, it, the El Nino happens in the middle of the tropical Pacific Ocean, way away from us. But then it acts kind of like ripples in a pond, you know, and, and, and the, the weather kind of downstream of that gets affected. So the question for us was, well, how do we actually look at that? And so what we did was we used what we call climate models and these climate models are based on physics they're actually cousins of the weather models they Mm. actually are weather models they're just used in slightly different ways and so what we do um, is we kind of fiddle around with things like sea surface temperatures because sea surface temperatures and the patterns of sea surface temperatures uh, really matter for the atmosphere because the oceans talk to the atmosphere and the atmosphere can talk back to the oceans and that's what kind of changes things that's how el nino works fundamentally and so what we've done is is had a look at um climate models with one type of sea surface temperature pattern versus other types of sea surface temperature patterns and played around with that a bit to see if we get a response in the model. And we run that model a whole bunch of different times just to see probabilistically, well, is it more or less likely to rain, for example? Mm-hmm. It's, um, and when you, what, what comes out of those models? I mean, do you, do you get answers that are consistent? So can you, if you run the data from the early stages of an old El Nino, do you get out what actually happened? That's actually a really good question. I might do that with my study. (laughs) You can have that for free. (laughs) Excellent. No, that sounds like a good one to do next. Well, what we tend to do is is run it with different patterns, right? So um, at the moment, I just had a student who was running uh, a model um, with actually slightly different patterns of sea surface temperatures off the Australian coast because Mm -hmm. our current theory or hypothesis is that, you know, the El Nino causes... um, you know, this common pattern right across the Pacific Ocean. But sometimes that can filter down to the Australian coast and sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't filter quite as far down. And we actually think how far it filters down has to do with the amount of rainfall that southeastern Australia gets, for example. And so he's doing model runs at the moment whereby he takes out you know, warmer sea surface temperatures off the coast of Australia, or he puts in warmer sea surface temperatures and see what sees what happens. Mm-hmm. So I don't have the results for those quite yet, but yeah, uh, yeah. it sounds interesting because when when you look at these and then and then you bring in the the adjusting climate. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does that mean for your model? Because I can imagine there is this continual background change, when, especially when you talk about things like sea surface temperatures, where there's a continual background change how do you bring that into what you're doing absolutely and that's one of the the big things and one of the big questions and added complications that we've got at the moment when we're doing this kind of research so in terms of, of the background change, what we'll often do in the climate models is we'll have greenhouse gases running in the background, mm-hmm. which will also increase as we've seen them as observed and as we pre- predict 
that they will change into yep. the future. And that will change the pattern of sea surface temperatures. And it's, it's really interesting because we're not quite sure what's going to happen with things like El Nino in the future because it's fundamentally about, well, does the entire sea surface warm or does the entire ocean warm? Or does it change the patterns of warming? And mm. at the moment, it looks like parts of the ocean warm faster than other parts, which completely changes the patterns, which changes kind of everything we know about how the climate works. So, could that potentially mean that, in the, I mean, this is just spitballing, but, mm. you know, could we just get missed by El Nino in the future as a result of those changing patterns? Well, it looks like El Ninos might actually become, I think the, the current research shows that they might become more intense. Okay. Um so, or more Bummer. frequent, right? yeah. Which, mm. but then the question is, well, then how does that kind of flow-on effect happen to Australia, and does that change because mm. you know the El Ninos themselves might be getting stronger, but we might have something else around the Australian coast, the Indian Ocean, etc. Um, we get influences from that as well. Does that change? Does that change rainfall? And this is why, kind of predicting what will happen with rainfall into the future is so complicated. Mm. Mm. So even though it's complicated, what can you tell us now about where we are today and, and what we might expect over the next sort of um, season? So in terms of the next season, so El Nino, as we said, typically, you know, more likely than not, I suppose you would say, will bring uh, drier conditions. So we should probably expect, we've had had a drier than normal spring, although not insanely drier yep. than normal, except for some small patches. Queensland, Western Victoria and Tassie haven't had it so good. Um, but into summer, it will probably be drier and warmer than normal. That's typically what happens with an El Nino, mm. but of course mm. every El Nino is different. So save your water, folks. Yeah, Save your water. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Ellie Gallant, thanks so much for coming in today. It's uh, great to hear that this research is going on down there at Monash and uh, keep, keep up the good work. Thanks very much. Dr. Ellie Gallant is from the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. Now, we're almost out of time because we have to hand over to uh, the team from Eat It, which um, uncharacteristically is not sitting about 10 feet from us in the other studio today, but they're down at the series Environmental Park as part of a Barbecue Day for Triple R. And uh, it is what it sounds like, folks. There's food down there. And Cam, I don't know if he gets his hands dirty. I think he will. He'll cook some stuff. He'll turn a snag or two. But uh, it's it's going to be fun. Dr. Crystal, thanks so much. Good to Always see you. Always a pleasure. Uh, we only have... And Dr. Ray? Dr. Thank Shane, you. It was fun. We only have uh, two shows to go. Um, today, one of the uh, lovely researchers we had on our show was our 100th researcher. I'd tell you which, but I lost count. So... <laughs> A hundred researchers for the year. researchers on the show for the year, which is a, is a good outcome. We like to fill the airways with good science, and they help us do us every week. So a big thank you to all of the people who've come in and given up their time on a Sunday morning, for crying out loud, um, to be part of the show, because it does... Um, does add to what we do. A big thank you to Liv for doing our Twitter feed. As she, If you're out there in Twitter land, you'll know how much she prolifically sends stuff out. Um, but until next week, I would say science is everywhere. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.